Hello, fellow cinephiles. My name's Ben, and this is the Real Movies Podcast. Live once again from an automobile with Barry Rowan, our dear good friend uh, who we've had on the show before. Uh, Barry, thank you for joining me again. It's an honor and a sincere reward to be here. Uh, I think the last time we were together was uh, It Comes at Night, right? The last time we did a show? Uh, and we had fun with that one. At least I did. Uh, I did as well. But, uh, and it's funny because I think you and I need to probably just make a uh, only review Riley Keough movies because uh, It Comes at Night had her in it. And then we also saw Logan Lucky today. Good point. Yeah, yes. I would be fine with that. I, mean, <laughs> I would too. She we knows how do, to pick a movie. So, uh, we should do, we could do Mad Max. Uh, we could do... Uh, American, Honey. American Honey. I need to see that. Um, I think it's on Amazon. I might have to watch it. Probably pull over right now and just pull over and just throw it on the phone. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yes, so Barry and I are in a car uh, on our way home back to Cincinnati from Columbus, Ohio. Um, we drove up here because, namely, they are showing 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's classic, um, sci-fi classic, and they're showing it projected from 70 millimeter film, and uh, that was just something a couple of nerds like us really couldn't miss. So we decided to make the trip up today, and we thought, well, it might be worthwhile to squeeze two movies out of it instead of just one to make the trip more worth our time, and so... We did see Logan Lucky today. We saw Logan Lucky first early this morning and then uh, 2001 later this afternoon. So we're going to talk about both. It's probably going to be the, uh, this has got to be the strangest um, double, double feature probably of all time. Uh, the two movies could not be more opposite. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, starting with Logan Lucky, uh, this is a film that uh, Steven Soderbergh came out of retirement so, quote unquote, the retirement because he, he, you know, a few years ago, I guess what did he make Magic Mike, and then he's like, I'm quitting movies. Yeah, but he still while. he still ended up DPing uh, Magic Mike too, as well as working on the Nick for several years and, uh, and painting on the side. So yeah, I feel like he directed a lot of stuff actually, like over the yeah between the time he said he wasn't going to do, he was he, he ended after behind uh, the Candelabra on HBO. Oh, that's right. Mike yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, which is a really good, uh, really good uh, HBO movie if you've never seen it about uh, Liberace, right? With Michael Douglas and Matt Damon. Yes. Um, yeah, but uh, so Logan Lucky is Steven Soderbergh's first theatrically released movie in probably close to five years, I think. Uh, last one was what? Probably Haywire or Magic Mike. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is uh, Logan Lucky is kind of a. Um, Sort of like a hillbilly's version of Ocean's Eleven, kind of, sort of. It's about uh, a uh, a family of um, you know small town regular folk from rural West Virginia. Um, Channing Tatum plays um, a man who uh, working his uh, contractor job. He's helping um, some guys fill in sinkholes that are apparently underneath. The Charlotte Motor Speedway 
in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, he gets let go from work one day after uh, his employer finds out about um, a limp that he's got. And so then he gets upset and then um, he goes and catches up with his brother. He's played by Adam Driver, who we find out was um, in the military and lost a hand. Uh, while serving, and um, so the two of them together kind of hatch this plot to um, steal money from a race going on at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, because while Channing Tatum's character is working at the Speedway, he notices that um, there there's like a pneumatic tube system underneath the Speedway that a bunch of all the concession people dump cash through. And so it all leads straight to a bank vault underneath the speedway that they could probably get access to. And so, um, I guess to sort of, um, either get back at the guy, you know, at his guys for firing him or for, um, I guess one of the, they had something against one of the sponsors of the, of the, of the, of the race they were going to rob. Um, and it's funny because, uh, it ends up happening that, uh, something happens where they end up having to push the, the robbery up a week. And that turns out to be Memorial Day weekend, and it's the Coca-Cola 600 that they now have to rob. So, um, the biggest race of the year, and it's like, it's, it's kind of fun and crazy, and it's, it's very, very funny. Uh, Barry, what, did you have any thoughts, uh, straight up or right off the bat about, uh, Logan Lucky? I think for me, it was just fun to go see Steven Soderbergh film again. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to celebrate that comeback and support it. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know if you've read too much about the distribution model for this, but they basically sold all of the, the foreign rights first and um, uh, distribution rights, and then the um, everything else went into advertising. And so, once they sold the movie before it was even released, um, now that it's bringing in money, every cast member, crew member, has this link that they can go to. And uh, they type in a password, and they can see how much money the movie is making. Really? Which is completely, completely new. So, I mean, going in and knowing that, that doesn't really relate to the story. But right. still, that got me in the door, honestly, as a yeah. filmmaker. I was excited to see see this play out. Um, as a film, I think it was I think it was really solid. I, I think it was fun to watch um, this, this scenario play through. And honestly, I think I enjoyed the the heist aspect of it a little bit more than any of the Ocean's Eleven movies. Um, yeah, just because it's kind of so, like, it, it, it feels like, it doesn't feel like uh, like a Hollywood heist movie like the Ocean's movies do. The Ocean's movies are kind of flashy and, you know, white collar, and they're, like, the job is clearly being done by people who are professionals. Logan Lucky feels like a heist movie that you and I would try to pull off. Like, a movie about you and I going to rob them. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're real fleshed out uh, characters with many flaws. Yes. Um, but, but some strengths. I yeah. mean, you know, we forget that these, the fact that these guys are, you know, construction workers or, uh, you know, military servicemen or, or hairdressers. You know, they all have their, their own talents and we get to see those shown off. Right. Um, and they sort of have that going for them is because, you know, guys like that kind of always get, go, like, they fly under the radar a lot. Um, at least by, you know, um, a lot of people that might otherwise I don't know I'm not sure what I'm trying to say but um, 
that kind of plays into some of the advantages that they end up. That's that's sort of where the the luck the luck comes from is that you know they sort of have the you know they're low key guys, um, but they're not as dumb as they might let on if you were just just to talk to them. Yeah, um, there's a lot of jokes about just being being southern and accents being funny. Yeah, uh, which was a concern I had. I mean, yeah, that first of all, that joke can only last for so long. Right. Also, you know, we don't want to just poke fun at southern people for, for two hours. Yeah. And I don't think they do. Um, you know, at first I was a little worried about laughing at it, but the more you got into it, the more you saw this guy's family, his, his life, his friends, his <laughs> job, and you got to know him as a, as a character, um, rather than just this caricature. Right. Yeah, that, that was, that was a nice thing is that they didn't, they never felt like caricatures of that part of the world. They felt like real people that you would, that, like, you know, you and I have lived in not necessarily that part of the country. But like you know, in areas where you know we we've known people kind of yeah, like let's them. do it. So um, we never felt like it. Never felt like you know people were getting you know laughed at or made fun of. It was yeah. it was you know it was who they are. And yeah, sometimes maybe that's a little funny, but it's more like we're laughing kind of alongside them. You that's know what I mean? At least that's how it kind of turns out in the end. Um, Overall, I felt that uh, I felt like you know it was a really polished piece it did run a little bit long for me yeah maybe it, i think it ran long probably they probably could have gotten rid of about 15 minutes or so the hillary swank character i didn't really think was yeah that was a little strange she, hillary swank is in the movie for about probably the last what 10 minutes 10 20, 15 yeah. 20 minutes um her and macon blair who was surprised to see um who we normally only uh run into with uh the jeremy Saulnier films um <laughs> they they play uh, FBI investigators who are called in to take over the uh, investigating the robbery, um, and I th- I don't know they added a little bit to it, but yeah, I mean they probably the movie probably wouldn't have been any worse had they been left out. Although I mean the, the ending that it, it pulled off in that very final shot was actually really I liked the final shot really well constructed yeah and where it left left the audience thinking I thought it was nice yeah. Um, I don't know something something to chew on a right. Bit longer. Um, yeah. So overall, though, really, really solidly entertaining thing. Um, I know Soderbergh can be a little like testy for people. Um, some of his films are maybe a little dry. Um, I know at least some, some of his writing. I think I've seen before where it's like okay, like it maybe takes a little bit to get into, or at least I could see maybe kind of the average viewer um, struggling to maybe get into some of his work. But I thought this was I thought this was great. Um, fairly accessible, I would say, um, in terms of at least ma- sort of mainstream appeal. Um, so that's good. I think in, in you're, you're talking about the distribu- the unique distribution model. Um, and that seems kind of surprising to me that they went that route and then, and it's, and it's turned out to kind of have this, it feels like a very commercially viable movie and, and they've done a lot of marketing for it. Like they really have, if you, uh, have seen anything like Channing Tatum went on this big, uh, I hesitate to call it a press tour cause it wasn't necessarily a press tour, but he was like, just, he was promoting the movie on his own. Cause I think he, he produced it with, uh, his pa- partner Reed Carolyn. And I think they, uh, they went out to, uh, parts of rural Kentucky and, um, North Carolina. And, um, I think they had a premiere, a red carpet premiere in Knoxville, Tennessee is I think where he finished his trip. Um, 
but yeah, he just went around to like, you know, people like and visited real people that are in the kind of communities that were represented in the film. And he just, you know, hung out for a week, just went around and talked to people and did, you know, the fun things that there were to do in those areas. And, um, I thought that was kind of a really neat thing. And it's funny watching the, watching the, those videos that he put up and, uh, because they're very much tied into the, the product placement. They're, they're like, this movie's got product placement in it. And like Bubba Burgers, so like that guy flying in on the parachute at the race and, um, Sunoco and, um, they might have had one of the, uh, Mack trucks, I think had, um, a sponsorship in this. So, um, yeah, that was kind of, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about when it's got, you know, such kind of a unique distribution model for it to have all of the tenants of kind of a mainstream studio type movie. Yeah. But I, still I feel very the, Soderbergh, I think is, is, I think that was his point too. I mean, right. It's the guy who gave an address, uh, I believe the San Francisco Pope Festival a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, San Diego, and just talked in depth about the huge problem in cinemas with studios, right? And just not taking any chances, right? So he kind of did his best on this one to cut out that middleman, yeah. As he's done in the past, I think he he's probably going to pull it off uh, pretty masterfully. So the big thing to see is, you know, will this will this take hold? Will this really shake things yeah. up? Um, and I'm hoping people respond to it. I. Uh... I actually just saw a uh, thing on Twitter right before we started recording this that said that he, um, I guess it's slated to debut right now. It's running uh, in third place behind Annabelle Creation. And um, uh, is there another big movie out this week or was out last week or something? It's behind, it's like in third place for the box office this weekend. And so uh, that, that, was a little disheartening to me because I think it, you know, it deserves to get, you know, a lot of play, and uh, I think people definitely need to see it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's funny. It's uh, Daniel Craig is in this. Uh, he plays a character named Joe Bang, and this is Daniel Craig like you've never seen him before. So uh, if you like, if you're a fan of his, definitely, definitely give this movie a shot. Um, and Adam Driver's great in it. Who else is in the cast? Uh, Channing Tatum is the is the lead guy we've been talking about. Katie Holmes has a supporting part um, as the ex-wife of Channing Tatum's character. Um, I think if you know, above all other actors, the, the girl that need, you know deserves the most attention is the young actress that plays his daughter. Yeah, I would agree. She is incredible. She was great. Uh, just, just sweet, but but totally present in every scene. Yeah, um, her chemistry with Channing Tatum was fantastic. Yeah, and Riley Keough for that matter. Um, he really felt that Riley Keough was her aunt, right. which is an interesting relationship to see on screen. I don't think you see that a lot. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, especially the way they played it. It definitely feels like... Um, for a while, though, I thought that maybe Riley Keough's character was Channing Tatum's like new girlfriend or something. Yeah. Um, I thought that for probably half the movie. Really? And then, yeah, and then I don't know when it was that I caught on that she was his sister and that, you know... Uh, so I, I don't know. Regardless, yeah, you know. Now that you say that, it's uh, yeah. I can't really think of any other movie that shows kind of an actual, you know, relationship relationship between aunt and niece that actually kind of feels natural, uh, or at least as natural as this. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty neat. I would recommend this to um, Channing Tatum fans and you know people that like to laugh. I guess I thought it was funny throughout. 
Um, and, but it's very, it's it's like it's, it's Steven Soderbergh. Uh, it's very, the humor's occasionally a little dry, and it, you know, uh, I had a friend that told me it was tell me it was very subtle in the way it was funny, and I could definitely see that. Um, so you kind of gotta listen um, and just kind of be present in in the film, and it's kind of and it's pretty easy to get into. I thought, uh, like I said, it's kind of it's pretty accessible. So um, yeah, I, I, that's Logan Lucky for me. I don't know. Do you have anything else? No, like, that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, that's everything I will ever have to say about that film. <laughs> that's just it. All the thoughts we will ever have about Logan Lucky. Um, but that's not really the uh, the real reason we went up to Columbus today. We uh, The real crown jewel of this trip, Barry, was our opportunity to see 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, projected from 70 millimeter film, celluloid film, on actual movie theater size screen that uh i gotta say i mean 50 years later it's it's still a good movie um <laughs> this uh, i was blown away like just you know pure and simple it is one of the greatest movies ever made i, I maintain um and I, I feel like we were very lucky to get to see it on uh on a screen projected from actual film stock um this, uh, I was, I was kind of, uh, we, uh, I said to you at one point, I think probably during the intermission and they actually did do the intermission, uh, during this, during this movie, they held it for probably about at least 10 minutes, I would say. Um, and, uh, so plenty of time to run to the bathroom and get a bag of popcorn. But, um, um, I noticed that the, uh, whatever, uh, print they used for this, for this show was a little, damaged um it looked it like the image itself when you could see it looked really really great um colors were perfect um you know detail was all there and it had but it had like a lot of you know time has not been kind to whatever uh celluloid stock they use they uh it's it's a little scratchy and um flecks of dust all over the place and that's part of the appeal i you know obviously with uh, seeing something on uh, projected from real from real film, um, but so I it didn't distract really. Um, at least I didn't think. I thought it kind of added to the uh, yeah the I think whole for, for experience. Us it, was, it was pretty cool just to see some film projected, but I did find myself having the thought that okay, if Kubrick was sitting right next to me in the theater right now, like would he not just despise this print? Would he not be so <laughs> mad? That the audio is so fuzzy that all everything's scratched up. There's like literally a bunch of tears um, in, the, in the ape scene, yeah. the Dawn of Man scene, yeah. where you can tell that Sony has, has taped it on there. Like that, that was that's the tricky part, right? right. You know, we're, we're getting this experience, for, you know, sought after, and he would probably be mesmerized by you know a 4K restoration of this. Yeah. Um, so I think I think Kubrick would be perfectly satisfied with the Blu-ray pre- presentation of this movie, which I have at home, um, and that's the only other way I've, I've seen this film uh, is on the nice, clean Blu-ray I've got. Um, that's hard to say, though. I mean, yeah. Who knows? Maybe he would hate it. You know, maybe he would. That's be a like good Nolan. point. I, I don't know where he would land on the, you know, yeah. Nolan versus digital. Uh, yeah, I don't know how pure, how much of a purist he would be. I feel like he would be a purist. Um, one of these, you know, these guys like Nolan and Abrams and Spielberg that yeah. hold out and make, you know, everything on film and whatever. Um, 
but yeah, no. Uh, so 2001, I, I mean, honestly, like we're sitting here and like, basically if you haven't seen 2001 a space odyssey, you're, you, one, you need to, two, what are you doing with yourself? If you haven't seen it, like this is without a doubt, probably top three, top five, if not top three best contributions to world cinema that's been, you know, I think it was, it was, it was it originally, I know Kubrick's from the UK, but this was technically an American production. Well, Kubrick's actually from, from the States. Oh, is he? I thought he was in England. Uh, he was born in the UK, I think, wasn't he? No, he was born in uh, New York, uh, I believe. But it was shot in England. Yeah, okay. Uh, a lot of it was shot in England. Yeah, so I, so I was, so I wanted to say it's got to be top, top five, if not top three. Best contributions from of American cinema, you know, that you can find. But um, it's it's it is without a doubt one of the best movies ever. So um, this is a movie about any and everything. It's almost literally like this. Uh, it's I guess if you had to put like a Hollywood narrative on it, it's it's about a mission a mission to space. Um, there, uh, I guess, has been. Uh, they've detected a um, in the year 2001, and this movie came out in 1968. So this is a, you know, a vision of the future, um, and so it's presumed that by the year 2001, space travel and flight and all that stuff has been totally worked out. There are people, you know, living and working in outer space, and um, you know. Basically, traveling up there and traveling back is basically like flying on a on a plane. I think literally they had uh, Pan Am Airlines, you know, had product placement on the ships that were flying back and forth. And um, but so I think what's going on is there is a uh, some 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 scientists are called to um, examine a rogue signal or a radio anomaly or something coming from the moon, and uh, the team that goes to look at it finds what they're looking for and then after that it kind of turns into a slightly different narrative where it becomes a uh, a man versus machine uh, plot and then by the end it's just kind of a total like experimental meditation on like death and rebirth or birth and death however you want to say it so it's almost like you get kind of three or four movies rolled into one. Um, so I I don't know how else to describe it. It kind of defies explanation. Just I think there's a lot up to interpretation. Yes. Oh my gosh. The one consistent element is this monolith that shows up in in each. Uh, yes. Yeah, spoiler alert: the monolith, this black monolith, is what they find on the on on the moon, and what's causing the problem. You know. In some ways, it's like, okay, what is that about? But in others, I find myself just a little satisfied that he chose this monolith. This is, whether it was him or Arthur C. Clarke, chose this monolith to represent, you know, the answer to to the meaning of life or to, to creation or the thing that yeah. has pushed, you know, humanity along. Right. That's, that's good for me. That's what it seems to stand for. Um, and then rather than, you know, trying to go to some insane extreme to depict that itself, um, he chooses this monolith, and it, uh, I honestly think it does the same job that uh, anything else could. Yeah. 
yeah. that leaves you more open to interpret all the other aspects. Right. So, so the monolith uh, is sort of uh, is is what you know is. I guess they kind of classify it as intelligent life, right? That not what the guy said. There's one point this guy says. They found intelligent life on you know forty feet below the moon, and that's and that's where those those guys found the monolith before. And um, so yeah, by the end, and, it, and it's it's present at all of these different you know kind of epochs of time where it's like you know it, it appears presumably on Earth, although you know I guess we don't really know for certain it's but it's but it's you know apes or ape-like creatures that are on in like a desert area and um so it's supposed to be the dawn of man and at one point the, the monolith appears to them and um i think it kind of signifies the circle of life really because you know it's present it's present when the you know at the dawn of man and right after it appears the first murder occurs the first ever murder happens um and then uh a little dodgy on when it shows up again kind of in the middle and then by the end it's kind of like okay it makes sense where this is kind of you know going with the whole life cycle bit um so i don't know it's a it's a completely you know totally unique artistic uh interpretation of myriad themes whatever you kind of want to put on it and it's and that's kind of what kubrick does is sort of you know it's, it's a weird movie and it leaves a lot to you know, it gives you a lot of ideas and, uh, and you know, stunning visuals. We were talking about just how, how many, like, uh, visual effects designers and engineers and things were hired for this movie. Um, and, and, it, and it looks, and it looks absolutely incredible. I don't, the visual, whatever visual effects it might have had for 1968 really haven't aged today. Um, especially the, what's called the Star Child, which is the other thing that, I think a lot of people will probably be weirded out by, um, but like it looks like it could have been made in the computer yesterday, um, and this is you know not even 1970 we're talking about. So um, yeah, just beginning to end, I'm top to bottom, stunning, stunning film. Um, you, Barry, I know you were looking up some trivia about uh, sort of a few of the artistic things yeah, behind yeah. this. Um, well, just the different lengths that he went to that kind of challenged contemporary standards. Yeah. Um, such as not using a painted backdrop, projecting backdrops instead. Yeah. Uh, I also believe that I read that he would he would store some some of these shots were shot and then they were stored unexposed. For up, sometimes up to a year. Unexposed, really. And then he would expose them again just to put the effects on. Oh, right, right, right. right. Uh, which is really incredible. I yeah. Mean, just, this guy went the purest route for all of these things to, to just convey them the best that he could. No stop motion, to my knowledge. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't. It does not look to me like a film that came out of a computer. No. But. Um, but it looks well ahead of its time. Models are so are, are just so realistic. It's um, it's really really astounding to look at. Uh, and the editing, you know, Ben just drove off off the highway. Dan, edit that out. <laughs> um, we, uh, but uh, yeah, so the editing. The, 
the editing. Yeah, the editing. Um, well, you know, what else did you find? Uh, the, I guess the music was done by, I think, I want to say it was done by the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, you know, the, the also Sprax Zarathustra is the classic theme uh, music that everybody thinks of when they, you know, hear 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever. And then it, not just that, but it also has uh, some other classical pieces of um, music that you'll you'll recognize if you see the film. Um, and, I mean, it's just, it's really well done. It's another one that's a little, maybe a little tough to get into if you're not a, a movie nerd like us. Um, I remember the first time I ever tried to watch this movie, I think I shut it off after probably the first 45 minutes um, or 30 minutes because I was just like, okay, what the hell is going on? Uh, this is stupid. This is weird. I don't understand any of it. What the hell? And so then I didn't, I didn't interact with it at all until probably sometime during college. And, um, it had, you know, it had been several years between the first time I tried to watch and then, uh, um, whenever I got around to it and I sat down and forced myself to watch the whole thing beginning to end. And I just, I was absolutely blown away. Um, it is, it is one of my favorite movies of all time. And um, I'm happy that we were able to get to see it kind of in a yeah. in a proper setting. Yeah, I mean, some things that I was well aware of, such as that uh, that famous match shot of the bone and the, yes. and the spaceship. Yes. Things like that were just so pleasing to see in the theater. Just, yes. just to see, it's like, you know, seeing your favorite band perform live. Right. Like that, that was such an experience because it was just as effective as it probably was 50 years ago. Yes, and uh, one of the one of the things I, other things I liked about it too was seeing it in the theater was uh, the sound. Um, I mean, yeah, it was it was clearly you know an old print and an old uh, soundtrack that they used, but just kind of hearing uh, how the voice of Hal Nine Thousand, uh, kind of that that really soft. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah. I'm afraid I can't do that. But to hear that kind of like low, soft uh, voice in like on a proper like movie theater sound system just oh my gosh i was i was i was delighted it was so fun um and that's and the, the, that whole sequence with uh, after the intermission with you know um dave engaging with hal um and kind of having that conflict is some of the most intense uh and at least uh harrowing cinema i think uh that is out there really um so yeah, um, Barry, how do you feel overall about 2001: A Space Odyssey? I'm sitting here, you know, blowing smoke up its butt. <laughs> do you are you as ja- as jazzed about it as I am? Yeah, no, I, yeah. I had a great time. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that you kind of need to. Uh... It's an experience. Like that's that's I think what the bottom line is with this movie. If you were to try to exp- if you were to try to just explain it to somebody that's either you know maybe hasn't seen Kubrick, you know. Uh, or is, you know, iffy about old movies or whatever. Um, it's it's an experience more so than it is. You know, I'm going to sit down and watch a procedural or a, or a great story or whatever. Um, but again, it's 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 very uh, it's an important piece of art, um, and it definitely kind of feels that way. Even though it parts of it have strong narrative elements, but it's not it's not that way the whole time. Um, but it works, you know. Like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. It's just, um, 
It's just a good classic. It is the sci-fi movie. Like, um, without this movie, we wouldn't have probably half, if not all, of the sci-fi we have today. Um, so, yes, if you have the chance, seek this movie out. I think it's not hard to find, at least now. Um, I know I picked up the Blu-ray somewhere for like seven bucks. I'd probably find it on Amazon or on Best Buy. Um, and again, like keep an eye out at some of your local theaters like this, like this, the chance to see this movie. I, I took notice when, um, back when, uh, Mitch and I came up to do Dunkirk, we watched uh, Dunkirk up here on 70 millimeter and we did a whole episode about that. Um, and we saw a preview for 2001, uh, that was playing around, around this time. So I thought, well, yeah, uh, that's probably not something to miss. So I'm glad that we came up and we did this. So. Um, I think that's all I've got, Barry. Do you have anything else no, you'd like to add about to 2001? So, yeah, that's uh, Logan Lucky in 2001. We were uh, very, very pleased with our, our day in Columbus at the Gateway Film Center. And, um, if you're in the area, if you're around Columbus, Ohio, or you know anywhere within maybe a, an hour and a half or two hours drive, definitely give it a shot. Like, that's a, it's a great theater. They've got, you know, the best of... Uh, some of the mainstream multiplex stuff, but they also do repertory and independent cinema. Um, so they show pretty much everything and, uh, they're a nonprofit. And so I think it's important to get out and support those kinds of theaters when and how you can. So I'm very happy we got to do this today. Um, so Barry, let's do it again sometime. Yep. Uh, sure. we'll have to find, we'll have to see if they're doing another, uh, crazy 70 millimeter screening yes. like this. Um, and hopefully we will be back for another review either then, either then or another time. And, uh, yeah, it's all about cinema, my man. All about it. In the wise words of someone important, do it for cinema.